James chapter 3, 1 through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed, and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Today, then, we're going to talk about taming the tongue. Oops. And um, it's a little bit of a... It's, I, you know, I always like to name my sermons because it like, gives me a little bit of a direction and where we're going. And I, it's just the heading of the, it's nothing invented. It's just the heading of, of what it is in the Bible. It says, Taming the Tongue, which is just a little bit, I think, tongue-in-cheek, if you will. A little ironic because it's, James goes on and says, no human being can tame the tongue. Well, okay. I give up, right? Um, but as Ricky has mentioned to me before and we've discussed, um, as we make our way through James... The text really does preach itself. Um, that's what James meant for it, I think, to be a very practical book. And we make, and as we make our way through James, while he jumps seemingly from one subject to the next, it begins to seem more cohesive as we unfold it more and more, which I think was summed up a lot in last week's uh, text. Basically, if you follow Christ and truly do, your life should reflect that, right? The effects of your changed life, of your faith, should spill over into every facet of your life, the way you act, the way you think, your works, and your words, which is a, an aspect of your works. And this should not only affect us individually, but as we'll see today and in further weeks, it also affects our relationships, in our communities, especially our community of faith and church. So today we'll look closer to the tongue at our words. So when we say words, tongue, words, and in keeping with any good sermon, we'll do it in three points. <laughs> All right, so for those of you taking notes, here they are. 
First one, the power of words. Point one is the power of words. Point two, the poison or potential evil of our words. Point three, taming our words. Okay. Point one, power of our words. Point two, poison, potential evil of our words. Didn't quite come up with the alliteration of P for point three, but taming our words for point three. Okay. All right. Power of our words. James 3, verse 1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And here I should tap out. <laughs> Teaching. James begins this section by warning against anyone aspiring to be teachers. And especially upon further contemplation, very convicting, a, a, a convicting admonition for me and probably teachers around here. Yes? Because as James is about to make clear, the very instruments that teachers use to teach are words, and they are powerful. In the wise words, I, I was starting to develop this, and if, for you more fans out there, I apologize if you don't know what I'm talking about, but Spider-Man's Uncle Ben said to him, Peter, with great power comes great responsibility. Yes? In Proverbs 18.21, we are told that the life and death are in the power of the tongue. Right? Life and death are in the power of the tongue. Thus James says, those who teach will be held to a greater accountability. They will be judged with greater strictness. Because the way we use our words to teach can have a very powerful effect. Thus, we pray, and we pray as a church up here that God's words might come from the pulpit and not our own. We pray today. Verse 2 says, For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone, and if, sorry, and if anyone doesn't stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man or woman, able also, able also to bridle his whole body. Why are we additionally supposed to be careful as teachers and not all presume to be teachers? Because this is the one area where we all stumble. James says we all stumble in many ways. What he means is in various ways. We all kind of have our own little thing that, that, that stumbles us up, right? But then he goes on and says, each of us struggles with this thing, our words. Everyone. It doesn't escape anyone. We all sin with our words. It's universal. Here's where it gets sobering. Yes? We've mentioned this before, but Jesus says in Matthew 12, 36 through 37, he says, I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they've spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, he says, and by your words you will be condemned. So because of this, earlier in the chapter, James says everyone should be slow to speak. Yes? Words have power, right? Life and death are in the power of the tongue. Does that seem like hyperbole to you? rhetorical flourish, life and death are here? If so, let's look just how powerful words can be. Where is the first account in the Bible of speaking of words? I heard someone say it. Genesis. In Genesis, God creates. He speaks 
into reality. Life. His words literally bring life. Now, we're not God, but we are beings created in the image of God. And our words, too, have great power. They have power, get this, to create reality. You say, how? Well, words create self-image. Words create identity. You are really an accumulation of the words spoken into your life. Even the things you read influence this. Yes? So when we're talking today about, when James says the tongue, he's primarily probably talking about speaking, but, but think about all the things that you write. Right? So social media, texts to one another, those are words too. Remember, the pen is mightier than the sword. Yeah. So think about all the words in, in, in our lives as we go on from here. So this is what James is saying is, you know, when he's talking about words shaping your reality, your identity, in his examples in this passage. He says that the tongue is like what? A bridle, which can direct the path of a large horse. The tongue is like a small rudder that can direct the course of a large ship. And then he says, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. James is saying that your words have the ability to direct your very life and the life of others. They have the ability to create realities. Let's think of some examples on this, yeah? Words have the ability to make or break a community. So if we go large community, let's say government. What if you can't trust the words of those in power? What if those words are in, what if those in power are insensitive with their words and use hateful speech? What if words mean nothing or are unloving? They can break down the very fabric of society, and I think we see some of that. It's been, if you know your history, World War II in, in, in East Germany is, is the same way. Couldn't, you couldn't trust anybody. And when you can't trust words, it, create, it creates destruction, yes? Wars, suicide. Well, how about marriage? Words and marriage. Words can make or break a marriage. You may have even seen this a little bit in your own lives. If there's one thing I could counsel young couples on, it would be the way you speak to one another. What if you speak unlovingly? What if always what you say is suspect? What if your spouse can't trust what you say? Huge barriers, right? A um, little bit of an example, I reflect on, again, this uh, with the people I know in my life, but just I'll just say, Alyssa and I, is one of the things in our marriage counseling, it was, they, they said, you know what, you, the one thing you really need to do is learn how to argue well <laughs> and not insult each other when you, when you disagree, right? Well, I've, uh, Alyssa's been very good in this way. When I argue, I'm going to solve it, but she's really good at holding her tongue. And she'll, she'll just walk away, and we'll, we'll come back when we're in a cooler mind. So we don't say something to each other. 
that we don't name or that our words could hurt. Yes, she's really good at that. Proverbs 18.8 says, words go down into a person's inmost parts. Good and bad words, yes. She'll say, again, Alyssa will say something praiseworthy to me, and I'll be like, that's nice. And then I hear it in my head days later. It goes into my inmost being. If you hurt someone physically, say you've even stabbed with a little sword, right? You pull that out as long as it doesn't get infected. The wound will heal. But words go into your very soul and sometimes can never be healed. Words are powerful. They shape reality. They bring life and death. And that's why you'll see the Bible, God's word, say so much about our words, right? We read in Psalm 119, again, just come to, I notice it all the time now, read in Psalm 119 today about our words, deceitful words from lying men, praiseworthy words for people who praise God. It's all over Proverbs and Psalms. And that's why it also says further in Hebrews 4.12, talking about God's word, the word of life. It says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing the soul and the spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So we must be very careful with our words. This whole time, like I said, I've been talking about damaging effects of words. But what about the words that bring life? Yes? Think about the words that have affected you. <coughs> Something that is, someone has said to you that keeps going on and into the back of your mind later on. Words have power. One last example before we go on to point two. You all know the saying, sticks and stones will break, may break my bones, but... Words will never hurt me. Child, a child saying, please grow up, maybe saying. What a load of rubbish, right? What a load of rubbish. The irony of this children saying is that the very ones who are saying it have had their whole lives and identities shaped by the words spoken around and about them. In fact, I can still trace, if you want to talk to me sometime, insecurities in my life back to what... Not my parents, they were good. They were good to me, but my, my peers said about me and to me. But this sh should give us also special caution in what we say to our children and around our children. Everything from what we teach them to what we say about them when they're in the other room to our conversations when we think they aren't listening. And believe me, <laughs> Alyssa and I always get this, I heard that, Mom, from the other room. This is really sobering, isn't it? Alyssa and I have these conversations more than once. <laughs> she has the habit, and I got permission from her to say this, she has the habit of kind of labeling our kids or saying to the kids uh, about them or what they can and they can't do well. Words will go into their very souls to shape their identities. And they are always told, if, if they're told something over and over like that again, they'll start to believe it, and it's hard to undo. 
it will become to them their identity. You see, the tongue is setting a ship on its course. And think about the trajectory of that ship years later. Words go down into a person's inmost parts. They're powerful. So point two then, James goes on. Point two is the, po the poison, right? The potential evil of our words. So we'll start in 5b. It says, How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, stating the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and itself is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. After meditating on how powerful our words are, James focuses his attention particularly on the destructive power of words that our words often do and, and can have. The Bible says that the words can bring both life and death, as we've said. And we've briefly discussed how words can bring life and light into lives. But James here focuses on the destruction and death of our words and what they can cause. He says it's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. No human being can tame it, he says. James compares the tongue to a fire. A small spark that can set a great forest on fire and destroy it. It is the one member of the body that corrupts, stains in some translations, his or her whole person sets the whole course of life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. We've just focused in our first part on the power of the tongue and what it has, its ability to direct course of lives, and here it has the power to corrupt lives, destroy lives, and has the power of hell, death itself. It's a restless evil, deadly poison. Now, if you're looking for it, Except for when he talks about cursing men of the tongue, James doesn't really discuss right here what type of words are poisonous. Not in this passage. You know, we often go to, you know, if we're thinking about it, we, we kind of, we go to foul language, right? And that's absolutely <laughs> poisonous words. Foul language, uncivilized, ugly speech, right? That's kind of kind of low-hanging fruit, yes, definitely don't want to be saying those things as a Christian, right? So we refrain from that language uh, out of honor to God, and we teach our kids to do the same way, but um, in order to identify here um, further than this low-hanging fruit, what James is talking about, poisonous words, we have to look later into the letter to see what types of words are poisonous. In fact, You'll find James talking about words, what we say actually for the rest of the letter. <laughs> so be, be attentive to that. But here are some clues if you're, if you're looking down. James 4.11 says, Do not speak against one another. Or sorry, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Or another translation, I think the NIV says, Brothers, do not slander one another. 
In James 5, 9, it says, do not grumble against one another. And I read that grumble really means to roll the eyes. Okay? So don't grumble. Roll the eyes towards one another in your speech. And then in James, we'll, we'll talk about that in a little second. James 5, 12, then last one. It says, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you will not fall under condemnation. So according to these verses then, what kind of speech or words are poisonous? When James tells us to not speak evil, to not slander, to not grumble or roll the eyes against one another, he's saying not to speak unloving words. So unloving words are poisonous. And when James says, do not swear, let your yes be yes and your no be no, no oaths, he's quoting his older brother Jesus here in his Sermon on the Mount. Yeah? Let's go real quick together to Matthew 5, 33. Matthew 5, 33. And I'll read through verse 37. You've probably read this part about his in his Sermon on the Mount about oaths. He says in 33, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, Jesus says this, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what, what you have sworn. But Jesus says, but I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot even count one white hair, one hair white or black. Let your, what, what you say be simply yes and no. Anything more than this comes from evil. What are Jesus and James saying here? They're saying that as a Christian, as one who professes faith, that you are always under oath. Everything you say should be like you're swearing on stack of Bibles. Okay? Your speech should always be truthful, never deceiving, deceiving, not lying. So then, sum up then. If we're going to have a large, kind of large picture, what kind of speech is poisonous? Unloving speech, untruthful speech. Okay? Paul puts it positively in Ephesians 14 when he says, what does he say? He says, speak the truth in love at the same time. You see, speech that is untruthful and unloving breaks down relationships. It destroys reality. It destroys the image, those made in the image of God. Think about it. When we lie or are being deceitful, we are creating a false reality for people. Lies seek to exploit people, to make pawns of them. Lies create an illusion and disempower people. Also, by the way, when I say deceiving people, it's not just straight-out lies I'm speaking of. It also means it's not saying something when you're supposed to. Keeping silent when something needs to be said. It's also creating a false reality. It's still deceiving. And by untruthful words, I also mean exaggeration, strategic omission, and spin. All are deceiving false, untruthful. 
They're lies. They deceive people and hurt them, destroy and bring death. These are words that are set on fire by hell. That phrase, set on fire by hell, is not an exaggeration or rhetorical flourish. Who's the king, the father of lies? That's right, Satan himself. Jesus calls him the father of lies, and he's been deceiving from the beginning. His whole object is to destroy through lies, bring death. Now, on the opposite side of that, who does Jesus say he is in 14, John 14, 6? I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the literal capital T truth. So when speech is untruthful, it is the exact opposite of life. Poisonous speech Speech that is truthful has the power of death. What does Paul say? We must speak the truth in love at the same time, both. And here's where Christians, my brothers and sisters, I think we sometimes fail. Sometimes I think we think, if I just tell them the truth, it doesn't really matter how, and when, because it's the truth. That's not true. If you telling them the truth is not done in love, then you're not actually caring about the truth. Speech must but be done in truth and love. Tell the truth, yes, but do it in love. Be gentle. And here, I'll step out just a little bit and say, I am 100% guilty of that. In fact, the reason I would study apologetics when I was young was because I wanted to foil the people who were speaking out against in a totally wrong motive. It was not, it was not out of done in love. Yes? Speech must be done in truth and love. Paul, or sorry, Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You see, if you're telling someone the truth, but you're doing it in a harsh way, or yelling at them, speaking at them, or even being gentle with the wrong voice inflections, right, and wrong motives, and you're being unloving, and you're not accomplishing the truth. They won't hear it. You're accomplishing the opposite. They'll become callous to the truth. If you care about truth, it must be done in love. At the same time, truth and love. We must check our hearts on this, Christians, church. But the reverse is true as well. If you're speaking in a loving way, but not the truth, you're not being loving at all. If your words are not both loving and truthful, they're poisonous. They can destroy relationships, marriages, and communities. Truth without love is not truth. Love without truth is not love. And here again, I'll step back. I was doing this, and I, all the things that I say in the past come back to me and haunt me sometimes. I'm like, oh, did I really say that? Oh, I wish I could go back and unsay that. But you can't, right? And sometimes 
I, I get really embarrassed when I think about those things, and then I, I have a lot of regret. Sometimes even to the point of grief. So what do we do then? How can we, as those who profess faith in Christ, tame the tongue? That which is said by James cannot be tamed. What do we do? Point three, taming the tongue. <laughs> James 10 through 12. Um, read the rest of this passage here. It says, From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, this ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water, he says. So here, again, James is repeating actually what Jesus has said in much of his teaching. If we went back earlier, we, we read Matthew 12, 36 and 37. But if you go back a little bit further in Jesus' speech, he says, Jesus says in Matthew 12, 33, he says, Make a tree good, and its, true, and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. Speaking to the Pharisees, you brood of vipers. How can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And the evil man brings out evil things out of the evil stored up in him. Earlier in Matthew, in Matthew 7, 16, Jesus says, By their fruits you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. One more, Matthew 15, 18 through 20, Jesus says, But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these make a man of him. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander, these are what makes a man unclean. <laughs> it's sobering, right? Because you're just like, ah, so that's what's coming out of my mouth. You want to bite your, bite your tongue, right? Well, there seems, if you're looking close upon these things, two ways to fix our poisonous words. Taming our tongue. One, be attentive to what you say. Words will shape our heart. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. But more fundamentally, number two, be attentive, be attentive to what fills your heart. Because your heart shapes your words. They almost seem like they fight against each other, but they really do work together. First, we must control our tongue. Watch what we say. Become more aware of what we say. Why? Well... First, in my, I think I mentioned this to Ricky a few weeks ago, coming across my study and reading about this, uh, I came across an assignment uh, in a discipleship course given by World Harvest Mission on taming the tongue. And they said, the assignment was, for a week, <laughs> for a week, never boast or defend yourself and don't gossip or, gossip or speak negatively about others. In other words, don't build yourself up and don't carry others down. 
And I laugh at that because I'm just like, well, let's do that from 9 to 12 today. Right? Let's see if we can do that. But the point of the assignment then, what, what was it? I think twofold. When you're intent on watching what you say, you'll be shaping your heart by not corrupting it. Okay, yourself, as James says, the tongue can do. And you'll become aware of the things that overflow from your heart. This exercise will expose your heart and make you come to grips with what overflows from your heart. Again, sobering exercise. But more fundamentally, I think, number two, be attentive to what fills your heart. If you want to tame the tongue, if you want to get control of your words and use them as your power of life to glorify God, this is the first and most fundamental thing you can do. Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So your words are a mirror, a reflection of your heart. This is what fundamentally I think James is getting at in his whole letter and alludes to earlier in the letter when he says that those who ask for wisdom from God should ask without doubting. For the one who doubts is a double-minded man. The words here are a little lost on us, but he says, when he says double-minded man or the one who doubts, he says the ones he's meaning the ones whose heart is divided. His loyalties don't lie with God alone. His heart is filled with other things. James is saying throughout the letter then that the one who claims to have faith in God should not, will not have divided loyalties. He won't be a double-minded man. His heart, his affections, his very identity and self-image are to be from God and for God. And if you are truly in love with God, out of your heart will flow good works and good, truthful, loving, life-giving words. If what fills your heart, what gives your identity, your reason for living, your purpose, your center for worship is something other than God, it's power, affection. You will use your words to get those. And your words will be used for not God, but yourself. To gain for yourself that which you most hold dear. And your words will become poison. Because they'll be self-building. They'll be self-edifying. They'll be self-glorifying words. Which tear down communities and relationships. And ultimately create hell. Selfish words are poisonous words, for they won't be out of love for God. And this is why James says, from the same mouth, we bless our Father and Lord, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, double-mindedness. My brothers, this ought not to be how can a fig tree bear olives? He who one, he, how can one who professes to love God use his or her words against God? Does this cut at you? Does this grieve you? Because I know I do that. I profess to have faith in God. And yet my words often don't reflect it. 
And then I, I find myself, you know, saying with Paul, oh, miserable man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Father, forgive me for every careless, untruthful, unloving, and unglorifying word that issues from me. If you profess faith in Christ and to love God foremost in your life, this should cause us to fall on our knees and stop us in our tracks and cause us to grieve. But at the same time, we remember what Christ has done in the truth of James 4, 6 when he says, but he gives us more grace. You see, Jesus spoke, Jesus spoke truth in love with every word he said. Every overflow of his heart was God-glorifying, truth and life-giving and loving. He was perfect in his affections and words and works. Everything he did was out of supreme love and loyalty to God, not double mind. But what did he get in return? He got the silence of God. No words of love or praise when he was wholly deserved. He's the only person in history to love God supremely and undividingly, and the only one who deserved to hear the words, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, from God himself. But what did he get when he cried out at the cross? Silence. He was the only person to obey fully, knowing he would get the silence of God and the wrath of God. Why? So that God can look at those for whom Christ died and say, this is my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. When you realize the extent to which God loved us to be willing to die in our place in Christ, when you see the surpassing and compelling riches of his love, mercy, you, when, when your heart wants nothing more than to be with him and in him and glorify him, as David says, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and behold him in his temple, then will our words be life-giving church. Out of the heart will flow good works. Our lives, our faiths will show that. Let's just end there. Let's pray together. Father, may you change our hearts. Watch our words. Grow our affections so that so that we're not double-minded. And divided in our loyalties. Grow our love for you so that there's no room for anything else in our hearts. May we see that anything that might compete for our affection for you, may we see that as bankrupt, that it's worthless to the surpassing beauty and worth of you, our Father. And then help us to seek the wisdom from above. James will later say in the next passage to seek the wisdom of pure and peace, wisdom of gentleness, wisdom that's open to reason and full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. 
And as we seek you in your wisdom, may you shape us into Christ. Shape our hearts so that the words that flow out of it, words which are powerful, may they be truthful and loving together, life-giving, God-glorifying. As David prayed to you, so do we, we pray, Father. May our words, may the words of our mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, God. So give us, so help us to be careful with our words. Help us to be humble enough to ask for forgiveness for the words we say that are untruthful and unloving. And so capture our hearts, out of the abundance of our hearts, full of life-giving, God-honoring words. We love you, Father. We are your humble servants. Do with us as you please, and may you be glorified. In your honorable name.